You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you, if you will, to join me in the 65th Psalm. Now, if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have access to a Bible by smartphone or something like that, you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray of the chair in front of you. And, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that our gift to you. You can't steal it. We're giving them away. And if you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, let that be a gift to them. And so we're going to be in the 65th Psalm. Don't be afraid of the table of contents of the Bible, but we're going to be about the middle is the book of Psalms where you'll find 150 Psalms, that is songs or hymns or prayers, meditations, poems even, all that are, are wrapping up, I would say, the language of faith, the people of God speaking the language of faith in light of who God is and what God has done for us. And, and we'll find ourselves in the 65th. Now, the, the reason we've done this is over the course of the last several summers, we have devoted ourselves in the summer to, uh, to working our way through different um, ones of the Psalms uh, until we run out. There's 150 of them. And, uh, and, and the way we've kind of framed it over the last few um, summers is, I don't know about you, but if you like music, um, I'm right with you, and every single summer we have what are called the songs of the summer. You know what I'm talking about? Popular songs, things that, uh, now if you were like me, maybe back in the day, you would take a tape and you would record that song, and you would record it over and over and over again until you had 90 minutes front and back of a cassette tape with the same song. If that sounds absurd, it's just when you hit repeat on your smartphone and you play the same song over and over again. We had to go to great lengths to do that, and it was worth it. Because of the songs of the summer, they're, they're, the, they're mixed between, they're somewhere between annoying and catchy that you can't quite tell the difference. You wake up humming them or thinking them, and even if you're in this room, you're like, I'm not even a music person. You know what I'm talking about especially. It's the kind of thing that catches in your head. My, my commendation to you is that the people of faith would have the tunes of the Psalms humming about in their heads. The meditations of who God is, even that God hears our prayers, that God receives our lament and grief as we see that the, the, over half of the Psalms are songs of, they're the blues as it were, they're, they're the crying out to God in distress for help. But we find ourselves today in a more upbeat, that is a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of joy in light of what God has blessed his people with. So I want to read to you now a, a psalm of thanksgiving. You'll hear me speak of it. I, I'll give you, a, I think, if I give you this kind of idea about it, it'll help you understand. It's going to have the language of agriculture in it. It's meant to be a psalm of thanksgiving for the abundant harvest, and you'll see some of the language there. And so we're not sure if this was, if this was kind of a harvest festival song. We'll say a little bit more about it in a moment here. Um, but, but think of it as they're thankful for what God has done. Now, if nothing else... Um, this might be helpful for you. I was raised in large cities, and then when I was a, a middle schooler, uh, my family moved to a very, very, very small town, very small. And so I, I've, I've kind of seen both, but I learned everything I needed to know about agriculture by living in that small town. And so if some of these, seems form, some of these things seem foreign to you, then maybe the task for you this afternoon is just to Google agriculture and farming my favorite thing about Sioux Falls is that we have, you know, all the, all the benefits and luxuries of a, of a city, and yet I'm never more than 10 minutes away from a cornfield. And so there are going to be some terms here with respect to nature and agriculture that will seem strange for some of you, and for some of you, if you're, like, if you're, if you're, if you're a small town person in the room and Sioux Falls seems like a metropolis, this is your psalm. Are you ready? To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. 
Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength Establish the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. I want to begin our time with a question that might seem counterintuitive given the nature of many of the psalms that we've gone through. Where do you turn when things go well? Now, I know this is a question we usually ask in psalms of lament, psalms that we are invited to to cry out to God for deliverance from our present distress. And we might ask, well, where do you turn in times of need? That might be a, a, a pertinent question for you. There's probably something powerful and insightful when you think about what you turn to when you're suffering or in distress, right? Whether you turn inward or whether you in difficulty, turn to blame, or you look to some sort of pleasure or distraction, something to numb the pain or to get you through the moment. But this psalm might ask a different kind of question. Where do you turn when things go well? Where do you turn when things happen that are good? Not that maybe in this case that everything would be good, but even in the midst of a difficult life, What do you do with the things that are good? Do you respond and turn to and and respond and turn in things uh, when things go well in cynicism? Oh, this is only going to last. You know, right? It's it's only a matter of time, right? Are you that person? No, it's a beautiful day. Well, right? Do you turn inward? Do you assume that good things that have happened to you are a result of something good that you've done? My question, I think, will will set us up to begin to understand, as we've seen before, the language of the Psalms. The Psalms teach us how to talk, right? I I shared this with you a few weeks ago. We talk about how we talk. Language is powerful. It's a part of our own culture. And and if you think of the Psalms, it's the the language book. These Psalms are prayers and poetic laments or even poetic praises, how we talk to God. And in this case, we talk to God in language of praise and thanksgiving. 
such that when things go well, and I want to contend for you today that there, in no matter the circumstances, this psalm proposes to us that there is always something to give thanks for. When they go well, we don't turn inward. We don't, with cynicism, think that it's a fluke. But instead, we genuinely trust that it's an evidence of God's provision. Now, that might be hard for you to swallow, but let's walk through the language of the psalm and see if it kind of poetically stirs up these thoughts in you. So the New Testament letter of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonian church in conclusion of one of the first, uh, the first letter he writes, he gives them a powerful, uh, a powerful threefold thing to do. If, maybe if you're in this room and you're wondering, what, what, what do I do, right? What is God's plan for my life? Maybe you would even use religious language to say, like, what is God's will for my life? Like, what is this all about? What is it I'm supposed to do? The Apostle Paul speaks to you and to me who need very tangible responses of what to do. He gives us three things. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. What about the bad ones? All circumstances. What about the good? All, did you, hear, you get the idea? For this, that is this threefold commendation to us, is what? The will of God in Christ Jesus for you. That in Christ, at all times and places, we would be able to have reason to rejoice, a cause to pray, to speak to the God as you hear, who hears prayer, and as we see this language of the psalm here, I think commends to us the kind of thanks we can give in all circumstances. So where do you turn for things that go well? This is a harvest psalm. Now, it, it might be used in different, different circumstances that people might have sung. Now, notice I say sung because some of the psalms come with that little caption. The first verse in the original text was the caption that we just read to the choir master. So something that was corporate might have been something that was recited, some sort of a liturgy, but it says it was a psalm of David, and then it says, again, a song. So there was some tune to this. Maybe if you're a, uh, an artist, you can, you can kind of come up with something like this, uh, but it's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving. Now, this would have made sense to us the, or to the original people reading it as, as the Bible gives us in Exodus, in Numbers, Leviticus, and even in Deuteronomy, a command to praise and a command to give thanksgiving. Now, this was for a people who were much more agrarian in nature. That is, that if, if it doesn't rain and their crops don't thrive, they die. Or as we see in the story of the Old Testament, in the midst of a famine, they have to move. They have to go somewhere else as to survive. They have to flee from famine in order to get to where they can live. And the people of God leave and flee to Exodus. And so Exodus 23 tells it this way, three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of the unleavened bread. And that's where some commentators believe this text was used. As I commanded, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. For in it you came out of Egypt. No one shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall all males appear before the Lord your God as a part of this, sacrifice, this uh, worship service of sacrifice and thanksgiving. Now just stop for a moment and see the command that God gives us. I know most of you, especially if you're in this room and you're not, you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus, you're not a Christian, or maybe you're just not sure. I'm really grateful you're here because you can lean in and listen to us kind of 
as you eavesdrop, speak about some of the language in the life of faith. And I want to commend it to you and invite you into it. But, but it might be for you good to just see above all that most of us kind of have this preconceived idea that God's commands to us, that, that if there is a God over the universe, certainly his do's and don'ts are going to be frustrating. They're going to limit us. But notice that regularly, the God of the universe, the God who provides everything that God's people need, commands them to feast. Just stop for a moment and think about that. There is a God whose expectation of you is to party. You ought to celebrate. And and I I I don't know what what comes to mind when you think of the word feast. I'm a food person, so I kind of see the world through the lens of food. So I'm going to step back and and not do that. Uh, I'm not going to say much more, but I, I commend that to you. When I say, let's have a feast, what do you think you're being invited to? In Exodus 34, you get the same kind of command. In Numbers 18, you get the same kind of command. But in Deuteronomy 26, you kind of get an understanding of why it is that this happened. And I want to read to you out of Deuteronomy 26 why they were commanded to feast as a picture of the character of God. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you. And you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose, this idea of a tabernacle or a place of worship or thanksgiving, and to make his name to, to, make his name to dwell there. So, so inside the command to feast and to celebrate is the work of God to deliver his people. Because after all, if you tell a bunch of slaves to rejoice and feast, you're inviting them to deep despair. People who have no will, people who have no ability to, to determine their own life, if you tell them to celebrate or feast, what will they do? They'll, I, I, I can't do that. If you tell a person without property, without land, to grow crops, you'd fill them with despair. But see, inside the command to rejoice and to give thanks to God is the gift of his fulfilled promise. Did you hear that language? I'm giving you a place so that you'll celebrate. I'm giving you provisions so that you'll thrive. I'm giving you a fulfilled promise so that you will know that I am your God. You are my people. I will never forsake you. Their celebration was evidence that they were no longer in captivity and slavery. Their celebration was a remembering that they are no longer subject to someone else's whim, but instead they are free now because of God's fulfilled promise Verse 5, he says later in that chapter, you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering, a wandering Aramean was my father. Did you hear the, the kind of the irony? I used to be a wanderer. Now I have, like, like think of this, I used to be a wanderer lost, and now I'm a farmer with a crop, right? And, and we went to Egypt. We sojourned there. We were very few in number. And then the Lord came, and out of, because of the Lord, became a great nation, mighty and populous. And even though the Egyptians treated us harshly, humiliated us, and laid on us hard labor, we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice. He saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with great deeds of terror, signs, and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. You get the idea? 
The command to rejoice is the command to receive gifts of God. And this psalm was likely one of the liturgies or the, let's say, the psalms or songs that would have been used and these regular celebrations that the people would engage in to thank God for his provision. So let's walk through some of the beautiful things that we're invited to praise God for. And I'm going to state these as kind of like exhortations to praise. You might replace the word the word praise, give thanks, right? Give thanks to God, but praise God for these things. We'll start with the very first verse. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and you shall and to you vow, shall vows be performed. So one, praise God. I've got seven of these. I think there's seven themes that come out here. Praise God. And now I want you to insert here whatever preposition you can think of, so long as it makes sense, sort of. But praise God for truth. Praise God in truth. In this case, praise God by truth. Praise is due to you, O God. Quite literally, praise is silent. It's waiting. It's, it's on, we're on the cusp of praise. I, I, I pray that that would be true of our congregation, that like maybe three days from now, if you're reading this text and you're ruminating on it, you think, oh yes, praise is on the way. The next time we gather together as a people, praise will happen. Pray, we will contemplate God's redemption and his deliverance and we'll praise God. Zion, this picture of this hill of God's benevolent blessing. And to you shall vows be performed. Our God is the God to whom promises and truthful fulfillment is performed. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this theme because it's throughout the entirety of the Psalms and even for the rest of the Bible, this idea that God is the author of, the provider for divine reality. I even Googled this, like, I encourage it, like, what is truth? Or what is, in this case, a vow is simply beginning to bring your present reality in alignment with what's spoken. Right? I, uh, you think of some of the other Psalms we've gone through that are vows, that are like, Lord, help me. And then they end with kind of a commitment, like, God, I'm going to praise you. God, I'm going to thank you. It kind of sees beyond the, the suffering as if to say, I don't know what's going to happen, but God, I'm going to praise you. And these kind of commitments are regular in the language of faith. They're professions of faith. God, I will trust you. God, I love you. God, I give my life to you. And those fulfillments, that bringing reality or bringing our own behavior, in this case our own world, in step with, in congruity with what's been said, is the very nature of God himself. Who else do we find is, in other Psalms especially, God is the author of truth. We, we know God in truth. You can read the Gospels and see that one of the most powerful things in the language of faith for a Christian is that we believe that truth is a person. That Jesus comes and says, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Everything you need is in me. So think true. The commitment, the, the reality, the actual ultimate reality is Jesus. Jesus is the picture, the embodiment of all things. That is the creating, redeeming, and sustaining God is visible, active, living, dying, and resurrecting in Jesus. Truth is a person. But then truth then, as we encounter God in this, think again, think the, this idea that vows, truth will happen. We will say something and, and God will bring it about. We will fulfill the promises that we have made. We will bring our world into alignment with that which is true. And this is throughout the rest of the entirety of the, of the New Testament. 
We find this in the book of Acts as the word of truth. People believed the truth. What, what truth? The truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. So much so that the Apostle Paul and, and some of the New Testament writers say that ultimately God, as we find from, from, from the Gospel of John all the way through the Gospel writers, that God is spirit and we worship God in spirit and in truth. And as a result, then we speak to one another in truth and in love. Some of, the apostles, some of the apostles writing to some of the New Testament churches that we renounce falsehood. We've renounced what's untrue. So much so that Ephesians 6 says that one of the, one of the weapons in the armor of God to survive this spirit, the spiritual battle in which Christians now survive and thrive is the belt of truth. Our God is the God of truth. Before him things become true and apparent. We bring our confessions to him. Why do I go on so much about that? Because I, I could be wrong about this, but as I, as, I, as I read the news, and I mean all the news, you, the news that you think is not news, and you know, you know who we're talking about, right? There might be no greater thing assailed in the public sphere and even in our private lives and our sense of ourselves than truth. And I lament, but I rejoice because our God is the God of truth. And it is before God that truth becomes reality. What is true about God becomes visible. And as we see here, it becomes visible, did you see this? In the lives of his people as an act of praise. And so friend, especially Christian, hear, hear my plea is just someone, I care about you, I care about your souls do not sacrifice truth. It seems like right now most people subject truth to their tribe. And they evaluate truth claim based on the tribe in which they identify. Friend, the church of Jesus Christ is the tribe that subjects itself to the truth. And that is good because what Jesus says is better than anything anyone else says. It's just better. It lasts longer, and he paid for it with his own blood. So it's just a, this may just be a rant on my behalf, in which case you can dismiss it. But rest easy. Jesus is the truth and the way, and people shaped by Jesus will look more and more truthful, not less. Renounce falsehood, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians and the Ephesians. Put on the belt of truth. If you don't believe me, I've seen something happen in the last few years, um, maybe three, but certainly in the last 10 in the life of our church. I say this because I care about your soul and not earthly kingdoms, and I want to commit to saying what's true, that we commit our vows to the Lord and are truthful. It sure seems like people would have a much easier time leaving the church before they'd leave a political party. And you would probably, if, if you're like me, you probably even might get to the point where you weigh the claims of Scripture against the claims of your tribe, political, national, ethnic, cultural, philosophical tribe. And I want to invite you into a counterculture that we worship a God. Did you catch this? To whom shall, uh, to whom shall these vows be performed? Truth becomes evident before God.
And my prayer is that you and I begin to rejoice. Again, worship God in spirit and in truth. And so you're right. As a good Western American citizen, I have freedom of speech. But as a Christian, I do not have freedom to lie. Because it disrespects, dishonors the very character of a God in whom there is no shadow, no shifting, no changing, no lying. Praise is due to God. Praise is due to God because before him, truth becomes reality. Vows are performed. Reality in our own lives become, comes into line with what we confess to be true about God. Maybe I would just say it to you, if, if you're in this room and you were baptized as a believer in Jesus, Jesus, Jesus that too. <laughs> if you're in this room and you're a baptized believer in Jesus, one of the things that I, I, I can almost guarantee happened, when, when you were baptized, it, it came along with professions of faith. It probably came along with you saying something along the lines of, is Jesus good? Yes. Um, if you were in a really, in a really strong, uh, in a strong church, you would add, do you renounce the deeds of Satan? And maybe, hopefully you said yes, right? But think about those as vows that Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit allows us to carry out. So Christian, remember your baptism. Remember your profession that you are now buried with Christ and you will be resurrected with him at the last day. Those are the kind of promises and vows that God will bring about. Before God, these vows that you and I have professed, namely that we will be buried and resurrected with Christ, they will be performed before God. Next, praise God for hearing our prayers. Man, if, there, if there's like a, if there's a question in your mind, what is this God like? You know, well, who's the God that you worship? Verse 2 tells us something really powerful. You who hear prayer, to you all flesh shall come. What a powerful picture of the character and nature of God. We worship a God who hears. And that might be the most encouraging thing some of you can hear right now. I know, that, I know, I know what it's like. You might be in a place where, where you're not even praying because you're afraid that your prayer would just bounce off the ceiling and kind of reverberate in the room. And you're afraid to do that. Well, well let me just encourage you. We're here to pray when you're not able. The community of faith is here to encourage and and to, and to profess goodness about God, we, right? This is every, every Sunday we gather and someone sings something glorious about Jesus that probably you and I have a hard time believing is true, and that's okay because we're invited again to, to, to ponder a mystery that the God of the universe who created every single atom that exists hears you, sees and cares for you, and to prove it, he came to be a person like you, so that you would know our God is not up there and out there, but with us and for us. Praise God for blotting out our transgressions. When iniquities prevail against me, overwhelm me, you atone for our transgressions. Praise the God who sees what's broken in the world and sees what's broken and corrupt in you and has the power to atone. Now, David, the psalmist here, is, is probably picturing his own sin here and knowing that, that he can look to God and find atonement. Now, those are a couple, uh, a couple words in a language that, that I might just, just give you a cursory definition. Sin. You might wonder, why are these religious people, why are these Christians always talking about sin? Well, sin is the language the Bible used to describe a transgression that is an offense against God. 
Now, we have all sorts of different words for offenses, right? If you, if you speed, it's a violation, or like you break a law, it's a crime. When you transgress against a particular thing, when you, when you offend or rebel against a particular thing, it has language, and the language the Bible gives us is the language of sin. That is, to rebel against the perfection and holiness of the God who has created and sustains all things is called sin. And the way that it's made right is another word there that you saw that maybe isn't very common for you, but you might hear religious people, and that is atonement. Atone, that is to make right, to reconcile, and to redeem. Sometimes this language is used to buy back, to put something back together. This is beautiful. There might not be a better thing for you and I to meditate upon because there might not be a, a more powerful way to display our God to the world than reconciliation. The ability to forgive, to, to actually say we're good. Not because of our own power, our own ability to forgive, but because of the grace that God gives. That's who God is. God is the one, even when my sin and the sin of the world seems overwhelming, prevailing against me, you atone for our. What a beautiful picture, the language of, of, of singularity, my sin, when, when sin, when, my, when iniquity prevails against me, and yet also the language of the community. When sin seems to overwhelm me, you, attain, you atone for what? My? No. Our. What a beautiful picture of how we are individually and corporately known by the God of the universe. Praise God that he has the ability to make right what we cannot. Praise God that he satisfies us by drawing us to himself. It says, blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. Now, the courts wouldn't have been the inner, inner temple language, but the courts would have been the outer language of, of sacrifice and, and worship, that the nations, the outsiders would have come and been welcomed in. And, and we see this beautiful thing that God draws us into himself, even the outsider, and satisfies us with his very goodness in his house, the holiness of his temple. And so now we see these mixed metaphors. Uh, before we move on, I'll, I'll just give you a little bit of a kind of a help to interpret them. Whenever you see these mixed metaphors, right here we see the language of forgiveness, and then we see the language of the temple, and then we see the language of nature and creation, mountains, oceans, seas, right? And then you see the language of agriculture, and the language of this people of God, and a harvest. And so it's okay to come to this and ask questions like, okay, um, which is it? Uh, which metaphor is, is, is meant to help us interpret this and be and, and be encouraged by this. And it's okay to ask God this, and, and the answer might be helpful, because you might find yourself saying like, so is this psalm about God's redemptive presence in the temple? Or is this psalm uh, about God's life-giving presence in nature and in agriculture? Or is this psalm about, as we see here, the atonement and redemption of his people? And the answer when you ask those questions is, yes. Right? You're meant to see them all together. You're meant to look at them through different lenses. You're meant to see the nature of God's people through the nature of creation. And the nature of God's people through the nature of agriculture, which I'm sure you're going to Google today. That being said, what, what an irony that in the middle of a, in the middle of a drought, the, the week that I'm preaching on a psalm about God's abundance and rain, it rains. And the irony is even thicker because even though it's beautiful and glorious and we're glad that it's raining, uh, it's dreary. Deal with that. I don't know what to tell you. But on one hand, I want to tell you that's a happy coincidence. 
It's a happy coincidence on the day I talked to you about God's provision for his people that's visible even in raindrops. It's a coincidence that I was talking about that the day that it happened. But on the other hand, if we read this psalm truthfully, there is no coincidence. It's a kindness. And so, praise God, he draws us near to himself. In the temple, we see here, in the beauty of creation, and in harvesting a people to himself. Praise God that he is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 5, by his awesome deeds, he answers us in righteousness. And then you see this list of things that God does. God makes the mountains, makes them big and mighty. God makes the waves of the sea do what they will. And then something powerful. Remember the mixed metaphors? You think he's talking about, you think he's talking about nature? And then he adds in the end of verse 7, even the tumult of the peoples. And so another word that we use a lot is this word sovereign. And what we mean by that is God is master, king, lord, ruler, and benevolent father over everything. And I know some things make that difficult to believe and difficult to see. And yet we find here there are indicators. Every time you see a mountain, every time you see an ocean, even if that mountain is at its worst and is deadly, and even if that ocean is at its worst and is deadly, They're meant to be reminders of how God brings peace and calm and is sovereign over all things, even his people. Praise God that he's sovereign over all things. Praise God. Uh, I added an extra that just to mess with you grammar nerds. Got me. Praise God that no one is beyond his reach. Look what he says then. So you visit the earth. Excuse me. This is the stilling of the seas so that in order. Why is God doing this? Why is God... Uh, building mountains? Why is God building oceans? Why is God working among his people so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs? You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. What a, it's poetic language for uh, sunset and sunrise. And yet we see here is so that the, the reason that God does all these mighty things in nature is so that no one, no one would miss out. Romans 1 says that Even people who have never heard the name of Jesus, have never heard the name of the God that is, are without excuse because they can see the beauty in creation and know there's something bigger than them. In fact, what height of rebellion, what height of pride to look at the Grand Canyon and boast? What height of stupidity to walk to the edge of the Grand Canyon and boast by jumping off of it? You get it? Now, I want you to see under that uh, like the same way that you wouldn't boast by, by swimming to the bottom of the ocean. You can't. It's bigger than you. Those are meant to stir in us the language of awe and reverence and worship to God. Now, the, the underlying blessing in that is, uh, uh, this is just an observation. This is why I think you and I like to go on vacation to places that are bigger than us. Because when we're next to something huge, it gives us the ability to rest. There's some, like when you're staring at the ocean, the sunset here, right? the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. When you're sitting next to a massive mountain, a massive waterfall, a massive canyon, right? Fill in the blank, whatever that, think think of the the beautiful scenic uh, vacation that's rolling around in your head, even right now, and you wish you were there. At least some of that, I believe, is the imprint of the character of God on your soul to rest in things that are huge and bigger than you. Because after all, who would look at a sunset and boast? Right? Who, would, who would look at a sunset and say, Psh, I can do better than that? You, you, get, you get the idea? Those are meant to be comforts for us, pictures. Praise God that those are pictures of a God 
for whom no one is beyond his reach. Anyone can see and experience this. And this is the call to the New Testament church to be intentionally going with the truth of what Jesus has done for us to the nations, the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1 tells us, praise God for giving abundant life. Here's the last section. It's the language of agriculture, but there's something beautiful in it. You visit the earth, you water it, you enrich it. And all of this is so that it would thrive abundantly, that there would be bounty. You see this? An overflowing wagon of abundance, right? Fill in the blank with your own modern agricultural uh, metaphor there. You crown the year with your bounty. The pastures and the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy, right? Just like think of the metaphors mixed in there that you would look at a lush green field and think joy. Like this, this is a lush green pasture that's worshiping the other psalms tell us, crying out with some sort of voiceless wonder, their joy in the Lord's provision. The meadows clothe, them, clothe themselves with flocks, right? Next time, you, next time you drive past a smelly feedlot, just stop for a minute and consider that that little lot, whatever it may be, is clothing itself with joy. It's singing for joy. Don't tell them that. They're, they're not going to have a happy ending for their life, but, but it's happy for us. It's God's abundance. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Look, every time, every time, I mean, I love that. The valleys deck themselves with grain. Every uh, candy corn stand that sits out in our city ought to be a reminder for you and I of God's kindness. That God gives us not just things to survive, uh, but he gives us things to thrive. Namely, not corn, but butter and salt, obviously. (laughs) Praise God. Praise God for being the source of abundant life. In the temple where there was atonement for sin, in nature and in the harvest where there was life, and even in his people. So let me give you a couple of glories that I think uh, this psalm points to for you and I. First, behold the glory. Connect the dots here. The glory, as you follow the logic of the psalm, the glory of the harvest of Jesus. Look at the glory of the harvest of Jesus. Uh, The passage of Scripture I would connect this to. Oh, these are out of order. I'm sorry. I messed it up. Um, The glory of the harvest of Jesus. That is, that this picture of God's people, the tumult of the people, and the people from the ends of the earth being drawn into this, this metaphor of the harvest is something that you and I hold very tightly. We believe that God has done something amazing here, that God is calling us into something beautiful, that in Christ, all things are coming together. God is doing something profound and powerful, but we'll come back to it in just a moment. So now look at, if, if it, because I think it's the best place to end, look at the glory of a good endeavor. Look through the lens of this psalm, is that these people were working with their hands, farming, ranching, right? They were doing the hard work of of agricultural life, and yet God was the one who brought the abundance. And I want to encourage you with the glory of a good endeavor. Did you see the metaphor here? How this metaphor of them having a fruitful agricultural endeavor reflected the goodness of God. And friend, so do the good endeavors that you and I put our hands to. Now this might be an encouragement for some of you. Some of you think you're in a dead-end job. That just might be because you haven't seen what it really is. Every good work Everything 
regardless of the sector of the economy in which it is situated, reflects the character of God. And when we begin to join in it, just like these farmers who are joining in and reaping and sowing, evidently for the glory of God, so also do you and I. So, I don't know, I'm going to think of the most boring, this is going to, I don't know. Think of an accountant or a banker, right? I don't know anyone, there are no, I don't, not yet, they're tried to, but there are no superhero movies about bankers and accountants. So that's why I picked on you, I apologize, you know this, you know, Ooh, here we go. Uh, and yet there's something beautiful. You work at a bank, right? You might think, oh, what do I do here, right? I, I, I'm in a call center for a bank. What does a bank do? Just stop for a minute and think about the purpose of a bank. Why was it even created? What does it provide? And under the, under the goal, under the, under the foundation of every bank is the goal for security, Give me the money and we'll keep it safe. And so stop for just a moment, you banker accountant, and think of this. Who invented security? Where did that idea even come from? What creative mind flowed forth with security? Do you see it? And even putting little numbers in little boxes reflects the character of God. You can even see this in the most perverse Think about it. Think about something like human trafficking. Think about something like prostitution. What does it exist to do? It exists to give people pleasure, comfort, companionship. And look for just a moment, even in the most perverse circumstances, even the most perverse circumstances reflect something because after all, who ultimately invented security and also invented companionship, comfort, and pleasure? You get it? Now, in that same way, I use that as an analogy so you'll know we can, we can pervert the work of our hands. But here's the thing. Any good endeavor will testify to the character of God. And underneath any good endeavor, you and I get to, like these, like these people who are farming and ranching, glorify God. His goodness becomes visible in the way that you thrive in education, right? In finance, in entrepreneurship, in medicine, right? Wherever, where just stop for a minute and ponder the glory of God that's visible in what you do and be encouraged. Might, might that help you in your nine to five? Might this psalm help you give thanks? Okay, I do have a lousy boss, given maybe, oops. Uh, it's not perfect, but whatever you do with your hands, it points to something. That's why the Apostle Paul encourages the Colossians, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for, just in case you do have a lousy boss, men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, I bet, underneath that work you do, as a mom, a dad, right, just pick the thing, you're reflecting the good character of God. Behold the glory of a good endeavor. Behold the glory of our role in the harvest. That is that ultimately what we are doing, even by our good endeavors, but as we, as we look to the, the Christ, the Lord of the harvest, we find something amazing. Matthew 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 35 says it this way, Jesus went throughout all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Do you hear the good endeavors he was doing? For when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See the glory of Christ as the Lord of the harvest who invites you and I to participate in it. Pray that more people would see the brokenness in the world and heed the call of the Holy Spirit to begin to minister with the truth of the gospel and the work of their hands there. That's why God put you here. God put you here in this city not for your own benefit, but for its benefit. Because as Jesus looks at your family, like your friend group, your school, your your neighborhood, this city, and the world, did you hear what Jesus does? He has compassion over it. And you and I know there is more brokenness in this city than you and I can handle. There's more brokenness in your family than you and I can handle. And so what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to see that. That's a fulfillment of the promise. The Lord of the harvest says, of course that's the case. You know that's going to be the case. Look to me, pray for me, that more people would lead. So join me. Pray for missionaries. Pray that Lord, the Lord would raise up more people to plant churches, to pastor and to lead in churches. Pray that more people would lead gospel communities in our city and, and, and in the life of this church. Pray, pray that the Lord would raise up more people to volunteer to share the gospel at Kids Connection, right? Pray that the Lord would raise up more people to share the good news of Jesus with their neighbors, friends, and family. You get the idea? I know it's overwhelming. Jesus says that's exactly what would happen. So stop and see the glory that he would invite us into it and pray to the Lord of Harvest. Pray to him. See the glory that Jesus would invite us into this great act of redemption. This harvest is something you and I are brought into. And see the glory of the promised success of the global harvest. It will succeed. You can pray to the Lord of the harvest because the end of the story goes like this. Revelation chapter 14. And then another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put on your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now most of the time, and even in the verses that follow this, when we think of the reaper, the grim reaper, we think of wrath, we think of evil, we think of awfulness, and that's true. The language of the harvest and the wine press of God's wrath shows up in the very next passage. It's something that shows up throughout the Old and New Testament. But notice that Jesus' picture here and what Jesus accomplishes in the harvest isn't wrath. Praise God. See the glory of the promised success of this global harvest. That because of Christ, death is not an invitation to judgment, but for those of us who have trusted in Christ, placed our faith in Him, the harvest that awaits us is a harvest festival. Right? Rather than the wine press of God's wrath. I don't know. I don't know what you did at a harvest festival. We, we're going to be bobbing for apples. You get it? See the glory. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. As He draws the nations, He draws us not for judgment but that he has taken the judgment so that we get to celebrate and feast. Praise God for that. See the glory in that. See the glory in the blessings of Jesus, who just like this abundant harvest, Ephesians 1 says, as, as Paul greets these people, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this amazing picture that Jesus has, has ultimately accomplished something for us. And he says that he will give us, as a result, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. See the blessings. The blessings in this psalm are of nature of the harvest, but notice that even for the one who has an awful harvest, 
Even for the one who suffers, there is still a spiritual blessing that God has promised to give us in Jesus. And then the first one I mentioned, we're going to come back to it. See the glory and the harvest of Jesus. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus answered some of his disciples and some of the people asking him questions. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat, here we are again, this is why I said Google some agriculture, man. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. For whoever live, loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See the glory of the blessings of Jesus through his own harvest. After all, look at, look at these beautiful things we see in verses 1, 3, 4, and 7. Jesus is the one who has performed the ultimate vow truthfully before God at Mount Zion. He is the one who has perfectly obeyed the law that we could not. Jesus, in verse 3, is the one who is providing atonement for our transgression. He provides forgiveness and reconciliation for you and for me, even though our transgression is overwhelming. In verse 4, Jesus is the blessed one who was brought into the courts. He is the perfect high priest that comes and advocates for you and for me, and now is at the right hand of the Father, ever, ever advocating for you and for me. Blessed is the one who you choose to approach you, that priest. Oh, it's Jesus. Look at verse 7. Jesus is also, look at this, just ancillary kind of benefits here. Jesus is the one who calms the winds and the wave and the storm. He's the one who calms nature. He has that power. We can look through this lens and see the beautiful harvest of Jesus, that like a seed, he was buried. So please, friend, in light of the celebration of the abundant harvest that God displays for us in nature, in the world, and invites us into, consider Jesus, the seed that died, was buried in the ground, and was resurrected to redeem a bountiful harvest of people. Consider Jesus, the perfect high priest who advocates for us, the one who has perfectly fulfilled the vows that you and I cannot. So friend, is there something you feel entitled to? Is there something in this life that you feel entitled to, you've earned, that, that no one's allowed to take from you? Then I want to invite you, confess and repent. Confess and repent. Because entitlement is probably the greatest hindrance to gratitude. Is there something you need to tell God thank you for? I'll give you a hint. His name's Jesus. Is there something that even now, right now, I know maybe you're like, this is the worst week, worst year, worst month of my life, and you're thinking, how could I possibly have anything to thank God for? That's a good question. I'm glad you're here to ask it, and I have an answer. Even in the midst of that suffering, even in the midst of that awfulness, you have something to thank God for. The one that came and obeyed perfectly, interceded on our behalf, was buried and resurrected for you and I. So that now, because of Christ, even in the midst of and through great sorrow, we get to celebrate and feast a bountiful harvest. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Is there something you need to tell God thank you for today? I imagine there's some things. But don't miss out on the abundant harvest that we see here. The abundant harvest that came fruitfully and faithfully out on that third day as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And that abundant harvest that will come from the tribe, tongues, and nations that hear the truth of the good news of Jesus 
and experience a resurrection eternal life. That's the abundant harvest we can thank God for. Friend, do you have something you can thank God for today? Yes. And maybe for some of you, it's the first time. Jesus. Let's pray together and begin to do just that. God, thank you for your mercy and grace to us. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you, you do give abundant blessings. First, God, I know there's many in this room that a psalm of blessing and thanksgiving seems like the most uh, incongruent thing to do. I know for many in this room who are experiencing great suffering, great difficulty, I know thanksgiving seems like a, just a difficult or impossible thing to do. One, Lord, help us to pray prayers and give praise of thanksgiving in ways that they cannot. But two, even now, Lord, would you begin to open their eyes to see the fleeting and broken nature of this world does not get the last word, but the abundant harvest, the resurrection life that you offer us in Jesus speaks a true and better word over us. For those in this room who are hurting, who are in despair, even now, would you give them comfort? Would you show them that you have come, that even in the midst of difficulty, they might have a cause for rejoicing? Give them a glimpse of how good Jesus is to us, how kind he is to us, to take our burdens, to bear them on our behalf, and to be resurrected victorious over them. Next, Lord, there's things in our lives that we feel entitled to. We think we're God and we think we deserve them. And those things have robbed us of joy. Would you begin to show those things to us? And Lord, as you pry those things out of our hands, might you replace them with yourself, the God who draws near in your temple to make his dwelling place among his people. Do that right now for us. And the places where we feel entitled and feel like we're losing things, Fill those gaps with yourself because that was what we were created to have a capacity for anyway. Do that now, Lord. And as you do, Lord, would you fill us with gratitude? It might be a difficult gratitude. It might be a praise and thanksgiving through tears today. But Lord, fill us with a thanksgiving and gratitude that we are now received, adopted, made new, given every spiritual blessing because of Jesus. And the very raindrops that have fallen this morning testify to the goodness of your provision that you will never leave us or forsake us. Thank you that we have all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.